worship John 4, 19 through 24. The genesis of this topic, um, I almost called it surprised by joy. We're, uh, Steve's not even in here, but he would like that one. But um, some time ago, I want to say what, year ago, year and a half ago, um, I began doing uh, this Bible study on Thursday nights. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to bring something different. Um, and, I, you know, being here, I'm allowed to kind of do some things differently than what has tradi- been traditional in the past. So I really, the, the, I want to do this out of having time with God, time with others, um, and that was important. And so this study came about. And uh, the first person that really helped with that was that man back on sound. Guys, Josh McCallie back on sound. Say hi. There you go. They kind of said hi. There you go. Josh McCallie, um, one of the things, he had a Thursday morning Bible study he's been doing for years. And uh, I came to the realization when I, I would attend it originally, and I didn't really understand that I thought he had just had product, that he had found a Bible study out there and was going through the notes. And he develops his own notes for those Bible studies, um, going through a book of the Bible, and they're incredible. And so he went through and began um, doing Gospels, chronological order so he took start he's starting with matthew mark luke and john and as time passed you know moving to the passages that were very they're similar together separate and and so not so so it's all in in a time-bound order so we may be we may be in john matthew and mark today etc etc so i took his model that he did on thursday morning and said i want to do this on thursday nights everybody can't be there in the morning if we all could it'd be great but we can't be so I did this on Thursday nights, and um, I had a group of people that began showing up. Um, you know, Dave and Elizabeth Reinegal, they're, they're, they come. Um, see, Pete and Lydia, who are friends of mine, they, they come. Uh, Rick and Christina Small attend. Jeff, who I think was security in the back, Jeff comes. Uh, a guy named Jay uh, is in there. Steve uh, Rushton comes. And um, the group became something I didn't really under- expect, the best way of putting it. Um, all of a sudden, I didn't have to have everything prepared. In fact, it's better if I, I prepare the model, but I, let the, I wind it up and I let the discussion go because instead of the traditional, I'm teacher, I know things, I bring things, and then everybody learns, this became everybody is learning together. And the person that's learning more than anybody else is me. Um, And it's something unique, something different, and it it brought something out in this particular passage we're going to talk about in John 4. Uh, We went through, it it began one night, then it became a part of an entire another session, and then it actually worked itself into three. So basically, I stayed in this passage for basically three sessions because it was such great um, content of things that were going on. John 4 is the woman at the well. If you're not, if you, you know, pretty much everybody's kind of familiar with that. So she was primarily what? Where was she from? Samaria. And they became known as Samaritans. What do you know about a Samaritan? What was a Samaritan? What are the, what's the common knowledge that you know about Samaritans? They what? They did what? They did what? They didn't like Jews. They did. That was his story of doing that, yes. Um, 
they were half Jewish, half Gentile, okay? So, and that's why the Jews actually hated them more so than even Gentiles, because they saw them as a half-breed, so to speak. They saw them as, they kind of get it, but they don't. So Jews had a very big problem with Gentiles, but they really had a problem with Samaritans. They lived just north of them. Um, where, what was the beginning of a Samaritan? Where, what, what, where did, like, what happened with it? Because that was where Samaria is, used to be considered Israel, but now it's considered Samaria. Why is it separate at this point? Anybody got it? The Syrian invasion, yes. So at some point after, so King David, right? You had King David, he had this unified kingdom. Who was King David's son that ruled after him? Solomon. Solomon ruled, and Solomon wasn't all that great, by the way. He was good in some aspects, but not great in some others. And then after Solomon, this split happened in the kingdom, and a king, you know, a particular king took over in the north in the Samaria area, and then a king took over in Ju- Judah and became the Judean king. So they had a split kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel and southern kingdom of Israel, and this lasted for some years. Around the 700 B.C. mark, and I'm not, you know, the exact date is not in my head, but um, the northern kingdom always had, so to speak, I want to say evil kings, but... Um, disobedient kings to the law. They definitely did not follow God in the things that they did, and they worshipped other gods. They found other ways of worship. They did many different things. Um, The southern kingdom of Judah had those moments as well. It wasn't like they were all cool and and honky-dory, but they also, during this time, would have some good kings rise up. Um, My son's named after one of them, Josiah. There you go. So King Josiah. Um, Some other kings ruled that actually brought back an idea of worship of God correctly, at least in terms of what they knew, um, and did those things. Well, eventually the northern king, northern kingdom, came under, under condemnation of God. God said, okay, I'm done. And so he decided to send kind of the beginnings of what was one of the first world empires in Assyria. Assyria came down into the northern kingdom, took them over, right, um, held captive many of the good people. You know, the, the, when, they, when they took slaves back then, they didn't take the lowest of the low. They took the nicest, highest of the high. They took the most educated, the most wealthy, the people with the highest resource and said, you're now ours and you're coming up. We're taking you out of this society. And that's how they integrated that society. So then, now there are people missing out of this group. And at this point, the king of Assyria transported groups of people from Babylon, Cutha, Ava, Hamatha, and Seraphim, and resettled them in towns of Samaria. So he took most of the Jews out. There were some Jews left, okay? And they resettled them with other people from other places. What did those other people from other places bring? Huh? Idols. Their forms of worship. Their gods. Their ways, Correct? So when they took, they took possession of Samaria and lived in its towns, but since these foreign settlers did not worship the Lord when they first arrived, the Lord sent, and I pause here, because when I started this, I had this assumption I knew what was going on with the Samaritans. I, okay, so I know Samaria, yes, northern kingdom. I knew all of this up to this point. So much so that I never actually read the passage 
that actually was, was, was the beginnings in this. I just assumed it was there. So my first session, we're talking I'm just like this. This is the history of it. The Lord sent, and this is where you would expect to hear plagues, locusts, um, you know, some kind of illness. But do you know what God sent in order to stop something going on here? Prophets? Anybody else? Anybody got a good answer? Other than the people in my class, because we know. God sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they were hungry. They were hungry. So in order, so Samaritans, this story that we have, which is which being a Samaritan is a very key point of this story of the woman at the well, began because of lions. God sent lions. That's pretty wild to me. When I found that out, I was, I, I was just kind of like one of those things of, wow. And I really didn't look it up. How dumb am I? But, I, you know, that's the funny part. I think we all would sit around and talk about Samaritans, and not once would we say, hey, I think they came because of lions, because we didn't really. And the, the other funny part is, I've read through that passage five or six times, never catching the fact that lions caused them to come down. Because at that point, what the king of Assyria decided to do to stave off the lions is he grabbed a priest and some people from Israel that he had captive and sent them, sent them back into Samaria. And that priest and those people's job was to teach them the ways of the Lord so that the lions would stop eating them. This was the solution, okay? So they come back in, they teach, they, teach the, the, they teach Judaism to the people. Do the people fully accept Judaism? Actually, they don't. They make this mishmash of Judaism, of idol worship, of those things, and becomes this worship of Samaritans. So Samaritans actually held to the first five books of the Bible. Um, the, you know, the, 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 um, so you've got you know, Matt, or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But they don't accept the prophets. They don't accept the Psalms and, pro- and the other things that are in the Old Testament. And then, so they had this form of worship here. And then they instituted other forms of worship with, where they would go. Now with that comes, Jesus is going through Samaria and comes to this town called Sychar, S-Y-C-H-A-R, which is at the base of a mountain called Gerizim. And there was significance in Gerizim. Gerizim was a place where the Samaritans decided at some point um, that they were going to build a temple to worship their worship God in their way. So they had this temple on Mount Gerizim. But about 150 BC, a guy named John Hyrcanus, who was actually a leader in, in in Israel, decided to come and destroy that temple because it was bad because they're Samaritans. And the temple was destroyed, but they continued to worship on this mountain at this time. Okay? So Jesus going to this place was no accident. He knew exactly where he was going and why he was going there. Okay? Now, with that, she was a Samaritan hated by the Jews. She came for water. Why did she come for water? Huh? Why, why water? What was her job? Go get the water, right? Why was she the one to go do it? Who went and got the water? Women. She was a woman. How were women seen during this time? Very, very poorly. 
Interestingly enough, was the treatment of women here because that's what the law said? Or was the treatment of women here because of the traditions that had been developed over year after year after year of what they did? It was traditions. Tradition, tradition. Yes, that's interesting because that song is actually very appropriate. That's from Fiddler on the Roof. Very appropriate because that's what the Jewish people held. They held tradition, Mm -hmm. not necessarily the law. But they still do today. Yep. So, by tradition, women were seen as lowly. Now, during the time of the Bible... Were there great women that, have, that, that, that came about in, in many of the stories? One was a judge. And judges, you know, you heard you know, the book of Judges, the one that you probably don't read so much. Um, judges, one of the judges in Judges was a woman. Okay? Um, in, in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, it mentions four particular women uh, in that that had major roles that were not just women, but some of them were Gentile women. And they didn't have the greatest... Um, history of their life. They weren't exactly, um, you know, the model citizen in terms of their, of, of their activities of what they did. But in this culture, just like in Jerusalem, women were, call, were called, and she was a woman, to go do the menial activities. One of them was to go get the water from the well. So she was a woman that was an outcast from a society. She was a Samaritan that was an outcast from anything Jewish. Why sixth hour? Why noon? Nobody else was there. Why was nobody else there? Because it's noon. What happens at noon? It's hot. So the majority of people actually would go get the water in the morning. Why in the morning? It's cooler. Okay. So why would she trek out here to go get water at noon? She was an outcast in their society as well for the activities that she proclaimed, she did. Which we find out in the story later on that she had not just multiple husbands, the man she's currently with is actually not her husband. So in, essence, in other words, she wore the big scarlet A from, from, the, from, from, from that kind of thing. She was an adulteress. So even in the Samaritan society, that was not seen as very good. So Jesus shouldn't be talking to her because she's a Samaritan. Jesus shouldn't be talking to her because... She came, she's a woman, and Jesus certainly shouldn't should be talking to her because she's an adulteress, okay? I lead that up to just understanding the power of what Jesus did here. He moves into this area that he shouldn't be, talking to a woman he shouldn't be talking to, has a conversation with her in which she's very skeptical at first, but begins to bring the conversation around to the point where she's like, okay, something's different about this dude. This dude is something completely different from what I am, and it leads us to the passage in which we're going to talk about today. The woman told him, sir, I see that you're a prophet. She's coming to a realization that he's something more than just a guy, a Jewish guy that was a little crazy. Because at first, she thought he was a little crazy. He was cray-cray, okay? Uh, he shouldn't be doing this. Like, you know, he, he asked her for a drink of water. Why would that have been a problem? he would have had to use the spigot that she used to draw the water out, and that spigot would have been unclean based on Jewish tradition. Right? Even just that act was a bad thing as well. But she's turned around. 
Our answer, so now she's turning this conversation into something else. Hey, our answer is worshipped on this mountain right here, mountain, Mount Gerizim. So they have a place of worship, they have a place to do, and she says, they say we should worship here. Which, by the way, would she have been allowed to worship there herself, even in her own people? No. But she knows this is going on. But you Jews say that the place where people should worship is where? Jerusalem, at the temple. Interesting fact on that front is this. Was worship in Jerusalem at the temple necessarily dictated by God? Where did God, what did God give them to worship in the first place? What was the first place he gave them to go worship? Tabernacle. It was mobile. It went with them. It was David who sat up in his nice palatial palace and looked down on this tent that was the, the tabernacle time and went, that's what God's in? Oh, he should have something bigger than that. I got this palace. So their worship in Jerusalem, even at this point, became a little bit more tradition than it actually came something dictated by God. But needless to say, place was a very important thing in their idea of a worship. You went somewhere and worshiped. Do we tend to see worship that way today? Yeah. I went to church today. I attended Mass. I did. We have this idea that place is important for worship, that there's something different about one place over another. We still do that today. So I'm just leaving that there. Jesus told her, believe me, dear lady, the hour is coming when you Samaritans, not just Jews, but you Samaritans, will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You don't know what you're worshiping, We Jews know what we're worshiping because salvation comes from the Jews. Yet the time is coming and now is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Indeed, the Father is looking for people like that to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus did something Big, right here. He changed the very nature of the way people relate with God. Because their relation to God was, hey, I'm going to go to the temple in Jerusalem and make some sacrifices. Hey, we're going to go to this place in Samaria in this one little area that doesn't even have a temple anymore. We're going to do some form of act of worship. But what happens if you're not there? You walk away from that place. Can you worship? According to their standards, no, you don't worship in those things. But Jesus brought something completely new to the table. He says, hey, you don't need to go to a place to worship. God's spirit. God can be worshipped anywhere, anytime, any day. Okay? Which begs this question, and these are the questions that I began to bring to this group that began to develop this idea is, how important is worship? How important is it? Is this something that, I mean, is it somewhat important? Is it really important? Is it the ultimate of importance, right? So some things came around. We had conversations around this. And I stumbled across something that very few people in these circles would really even know. The Westminster Shorter Catechism. 
Okay? Now, this sounds very what? Catholic. It sounds Catholic. It's actually not Catholic. Um, this came about in the 1600s. Westminster Short Catechism came from the Puritans. Um, so they were the people that kind of went against the, church, against the Church of England, even, which wasn't even Catholic. It was kind of pseudo-Catholic. But they were going against, and this basically became, when you see a Presbyterian church, uh, these people became what became known, or what are our modern-day Presbyterians and people that are associated with it. The term is reformed. They're reformed theology, so to speak, if you're going to use the term there. But the Westminster Shorter Catechism, agreed upon by the Assemblies of the Divine at Westminster with the assistance of commissioners from the Church of Scotland, as a part of the covenant of uniformity and religion betwixt the churches of Christ and the kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland. There we go. Why do I bring this up? It's, this is, you know, they're, the shorter cat, it's not a bad thing. It's a statement of beliefs. Um, it's not something that we do as a, you know, in, in our forms of worship, but some people do. But interestingly enough, the very first thing in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? And man being mankind. We're not going to, let's not play the, you know. But what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our chief end. So worship becomes the most important, the biggest thing. Not just something we come to church to do on a Sunday at 1030. Um, not just something that you go somewhere and, 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 and eat some crackers or dig through one of these things very difficultly and spill all over yourself, but, and some juice, or wine in some cases, um, it becomes something that you do ultimately as a part of your life. That's how important worship was, and that's one of the things that, we discussed, that we're talking about in there. With Jesus, a couple things that came out of this. In John 3 and 4, there were three musts, three things you must do. One, You must be born again. In order to worship God properly, you have to have the new nature in you. Your old nature can't worship God. That's a fact. That's a must. Second, the son must be lifted up. There had to be a sacrifice for your sins. This wasn't going to work if you're going to worship God. It wasn't going to work if there was no sacrifice for the sins because sin required death. That was a requirement for sin. And Jesus paid the ultimate one. The Son must be lifted up. But then, in that passage in John 4, God must be worshipped in spirit and truth. Worship equaling our new nature, seeking its source. All right. Now we're getting somewhere. Worship's very important. It's the most important thing we can do. But now we have to determine what does it look like. Because we're all over the place as a human race of even in Christian circles of what true worship really looks like. So I started asking these questions. Worship in truth. Let's look at truth worship for a second. What parties or people groups did Jesus take the most issue with in his ministry? Who? The religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees. Okay? Those were people that if you asked them, they ultimately would say, I hold truth. I know the truth. And it has to be done this particular way. But Jesus called out on many occasions 
what they did, how they did it, who they were, and who they thought they were. One that was interesting in the passage, you don't know what you're worshiping. We Jews know what we are worshiping. So Jesus is even acknowledging they have a form of truth in them. They at least know this stuff. Now, this wasn't necessarily a rallying cry to say the Jews were doing it correctly. He's just saying we at least have a knowledge of what the truth is in terms of Jews. Because at the end, salvation did come from the Jews. This is the truth. So Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes. Far earlier than Jesus pointing this out, though, Isaiah was written 800 years before Christ, right? Ish, Randy? 800-ish? Isaiah. 600 years before Christ. So 600 years before Jesus is having this conversation. Listen to what Isaiah said about the Jewish people. And so the Lord says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Now, how many, and we can look upon them and say, oh, how terrible they are. But how many man-made rules do we learn in churches or even this church? We do this all the time. We do it subtly. We do it overtly. We go all over the place. This is what people do with religion. They make religious rules, dogma, things in their head, and then they judge people upon, by them. And that's what the Jews did, really. With the, they took the truth, but they began to substitute truth with man-made rules to support the truth. Because at the end of the day, they would tell you, oh, we're just protecting the law. We're trying to keep you from getting to the law. So to try and keep you from getting to the law, or, getting, or breaking the law, they, the law says... You must rest on the Sabbath day, right? On a Sunday. Uh, actually, Saturday, but for, in the Jews, okay? So the law says rest on Saturday. Does the law say that if you get into a building in New York City in a Jewish, Jew, primary Jewish area on a Saturday, that you can't hit a button in your elevator because that's considered work? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's how far that goes in many cases. So the Jews found ways to make up rules to support rules, to actually not break the law. Our problems with truth, not, not only did they do that, but what does that, so if, if I'm taking these rules and making more rules and applying more rules, how am I treating people at this point who are breaking my rules? What's the word that comes to mind? What's the big word that comes to mind in terms of how they treated others? How did the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees treat others in life? They were judgment. It was total judgment and condemnation upon their, upon their lives because they broke their man-made rules learned by rote. Their biggest problem with Jesus wasn't that Jesus was breaking the law. Their biggest problem with Jesus was that he was breaking their rule, their, their traditions um, and their rules. That's what they didn't like him for. So, truth. 
We get down the roads of truth, and we do this in churches as well. We, we, hold, we, we find things that we hold on to, but we hold on to them so tightly that we tend to, to apply that to people in a way that causes condemnation and judgment rather than bringing them to life in Jesus, right? That's the problem with all truth. All truth can be harmful, and we see it all the time. We see it applied all the time. It was harmful there. It can be harmful here. Those extremes, the extreme of truth can be harmful. All right. Worship in spirit. Whose faith and acts of worship did Jesus actually compliment? Who was the people that he complimented? Who did he say, look at the faith of this person. It's great. Who was it? Huh? Common people. Who else? Poor, common the centurion. What was the centurion? It's a Gentile. It's not a Jew. What about the Samaritan woman he's talking about here? Is she a Jew? No. <coughs> Jesus made the best, most complimentary forms of, of, of things that he said to Gentiles, to outcasts, and to women. Those people's faith he celebrated in what he said. The spirit of things that needed to happen. Not in truth. Now we start to see, find out what is worship in spirit. So worship in spirit begins with what primarily? What can we say it may, worship, it may begin with? Anything? Attitude in your heart. Humble. Your heart worship. Spirit comes from the heart. One of the acts of the one of the greatest things about these people's reactions to Jesus was that they reacted to him with an incredible heart and incredible faith. Something that, by the way, the Jews didn't do. Even the ones that kind of approached coming to Jesus always held back something. Nicodemus held back something. Right? He wants to worship Jesus. He wants to do this, but he didn't give himself fully to it because his, he couldn't, it was tough for them to get away from truth. It was tough to get them to get away from this side here to say, I'm actually going to give my heart to what's going on in Jesus. Now, is all things great and good in spirit worship? There can be challenges of this. Extremes of spirit worship, okay? And, uh, I'm actually one, I'm going I'm to look at it, but I, I need some char- charismatic things in my life. Okay? I'm far more, ap- my own personal life, I'm far more on the truth scale of things than I am on the spirit thing, edge of the scale. That's just facts. I need those people in my life with a little more charismatic, with a little more spirit. I need, I need a little Baptocostal is what I need. Now, not Pentecostal, not Baptist, I need Baptocostal, Okay. But the extremes of spirit worship, the extremes of charismatic, starts to become experiential, right? It starts to be, hey, come with me and just experience God. A quote I've heard before is, put your silly Bible away and let's go experience God. All right, now we're moving down another, we're going to another place. This all, then it becomes centered about me, my experience, 
when I come to a worship service, if I don't have the correct feelings, something was wrong with the church, and then I hop a different church, and I don't get those feelings there. Or you get them for a time, right? And then after time, some of the newness wears off, and that experience isn't as great, and you look for those new experiences. That's the problem in spirit worship. When you go all spirit, you become totally exposed to the experience of what you're doing, and it can harm you in terms of what you're doing with the whole. So you have spirit worship on one side, truth worship on the other side, and Jesus says what? you got to worship in spirit and truth. There's a balance. There's a place. And that's one of the things in which we were going there. Now, are there forms of worship in Christian circles that actually struggle with both? Absolutely. What do they look like? A mess. A lot of times, mess. A lot of times, the places that do this have a couple characteristics. Number one, they're very ritualistic. You go in and they're going to say all of these things that they have, have written down in quotes. In some cases, it was spoken even in other languages that nobody understood. Okay? Um, so they come, they perform their ritualistic things, and they leave. That's their form of worship. Very empty. It's devoid of both truth and of any kind of heart spirit, spirit examples. That happens in our life. Can people come in here and actually not have spirit and truth worship? They can. Heart's not right. Attitude's not right. And or you're looking for the experience and you're not necessarily getting it because it's not what you're used to and you don't see the truth of it. All of us, we can find forms that, of people that, that, that have a problem with both. All that said, when we get into spirit and truth worship, I asked, it was the question with the group was this, what does it really look like? How do we get there? That was a hard question. What's the first, what's the most primary thing we can do if we're going to worship God? What is the one characteristic that is a must if we're worshiping God correctly? Where was that? Who said humility? Humility. Humility. God is God. I am not. It has to begin there. Because in all of these other forms of worship, I didn't experience it. I want to be right in my truth. I need, I want, I had. What's the primary goal of all of those things? I, the great and powerful I. It's me. It's all about me, 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 me. The ultimate example of humility was who? Jesus. So, what was Jesus' attitude in all of this? You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So our ultimate example is the son of God who gave that all up to become one of us. The ultimate act of humility. 
Proverbs 9.10, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It begins in humility, first of all, before God. John Piper points out two different things here. Do you feel more loved by God because he makes much of you, or that he, at great cost of his son, frees you and empowers you to enjoy making much of him forever? The aim of that question was never and is not now to deny that God makes much of us. The aim has been to help people relocate the bottom, the deepest foundation of their joy from self to God. You want to, be, you want to worship in spirit and truth, it begins with a humble spirit before your God. When, when Jesus walked with people, was he did, he just, did he just teach in truth and judgment? Did he just love everybody to, to its fullest extent and just say everything's okay and whatever you're doing is fine? No. He looked at the woman in adultery. He defended her, said, hey, who's, who's going to cast her? Loved her, but then looked at her and said, now go and sin no more. It's a, he had both. Why? Well, he began because he was the ultimate example of humility. You want to worship right? Home humility for God. But there is a second place. And this is where this group has done unbelievable job of showing me this. Um, because without it, I don't think we can worship properly. I just don't. This. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. So, if I'm going to worship in spirit and truth, I need to be humble before God. But where else do I need to be humble? Before others. Your walk with God requires others. Because honestly, if you don't have others in your life, God can't usually get through to you to get past your own pride. That's just 101. We will, you give me a loner who says he's a Christian or he or she, you say somebody who, I, I'm just, I, I worship God, but I don't, church is just, I don't want to go to church. I just, I can't deal with church, can't deal with people. And they live on their own. I can guarantee you, you're going to find them somewhere in the truth or the spirit scale of things, and their judgment upon everybody else is tremendous because they don't deal with other people. One of the things about this group, they bring humility to the table and they bring humility before others. And we share constantly. And we share in love. And we divide up. And one of the great things that happens is worship in truth becomes powerful. It becomes unexpected. You see things and you celebrate it. You don't, you, don't, you don't cower behind it, but you celebrate the truth that's there. And the heart that comes about because of it, because there's love for one another and there's no condemnation for one another, just brings out celebration and joy unlike anything that's ever been. You want to worship in spirit and truth, Humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before others. 
We have many opportunities to do that here, um, groups. One of those groups is going to come up. I'm just going to say it again. Will's going to start a group on Sunday nights from 4 to 6. Um, I encourage you, if you haven't been a part of a group, um, if you haven't really experienced getting together and sharing some of these things with each other, get with us, get with us on, at 4 o'clock on Sunday starting next week. Um, I'm expecting God to do some amazing things with that uh, and, and just see how we interact in spirit and in truth and watch what it can do in your lives. I'm going to pray. Father, we love you. We celebrate you. You are God and we are not. Jesus was the ultimate act of humility in worship to you. And that's our example. Now, we can't ever live up to that example, but we certainly need to move more in that direction so that when it comes time to be with other people, we can worship you in spirit and in truth, celebrating truth and celebrating the amazing fact that us sinful human beings can have a relationship with you despite everything that we are. It's amazing. I, I love the group I meet with, um, and I just pray that you work in other people's lives to bring them into places and relationships that they can see the same things in their lives. We love you and thank you in your son's name. Amen.